Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper. For today's episode, I went to one of my work colleagues at Today FM, to a man who is one of the stars of The Breakfast Show, who has become a much bigger star than even his role as the creator and the voice of Gift Grub, a man who has taken to stage on many occasions over the years, bringing a fuller show to the Irish people, and who also has his own podcast, The Mario Rosenstock Show, which has many brilliant interviews. But Mario is a very giving interviewee, and as you're going to hear in this particular podcast, he's remarkably honest about many of the things that have affected him throughout his life. I hope you'll enjoy this. Mario Rosenstopp, thank you very much for coming to my kitchen table. We're doing the reverse of our tea where they get their guests out of the kitchen and out of the canteen into the studio. I've asked you to come from the Today FM studios to my kitchen in a reversal. Well, Matt, I love your house. It's so, it's so homely. Um, it's covered in photographs, photographs from the last 30 or 40 years, undergraduate photographs, photographs of you and Aileen. There's a lovely little dog called Scout who's jumping all over me. Apparently she reacted well to me, did she, Matt? She reacted very well to you. Unlike some other of your guests that she doesn't, we won't mention. Uh, you're the first person to compliment the house since Cal Thomas. You're actually sounding a bit like Cal. That's the type of homely thing. Hey, Matt, it's a good Republican house, Matt. It's a good Republican house. You've done well, Matt. I'm a meritocratic person, Matt. I believe that when you work hard, Matt, you will do well. And you've done well, Matt. I I wonder would he know the difference between his Republican and Irish Republican house? (laughs) Well, I don't know how many Republican houses in Ireland Kyle's been in. Certainly not this one, anyway. No, and given that he, I think he used to go to unionist houses up north. But that's an entirely (laughs) different thing. Of course, you had Cal on your own podcast as well. I did have Cal on my own podcast. It was, it was great because he's such a pro. He gave me one hour and I think at one minute past the hour he went, OK, let's wrap it up now, Mario. <laughs> They're like, God, he knew one time. He obviously had a timer on his um, on his computer. Um, it was it was brilliant to talk to him. I mean, you're talking to a kind of a, 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 a journalistic legend from the last 60 years, you know, uh, and especially through his experiences in Fox and his exposure to republicanism. I mean, however, you'd have to say, like, the Republicans now are vastly different to Cal Thomas. Do you know what I mean? I mean? If you look at like, well, he wouldn't regard himself as a Republican. He sees himself as, as a conservative, as a conservative, which is yeah. slightly different. Yeah, I mean, but you look at other conservatives who come under the C bracket, kings like Marjorie Taylor Greene and stuff, and you, you you worry about the future of that country. You know. Okay, this conversation is already going in wildly different directions to what I planned, which mm. is probably what I wanted. Good, but you are exceptionally interested in politics, aren't yes, you? Yes, I am. I mean, from. From the moment, from, from, my, from I'd say seven or eight years of age when I used to watch Hall's Pictorial Weekly um, and Frank Hall and I used to wonder, he used to sort of slightly look to the left and I used to wonder, what's the door to the left? I used to want, think the madhouse was the door to his left and then you'd go into this door, Frank Kelly and all these guys would be doing all these skits. And I remember being incredibly taken by these skits, you know, and even all these men dressed in women's clothing and the madness of it. There was something quite f- feral. Uh, about uh, some of the performances in that show. I remember that was the first time um, looking at politics through this warped lens, this 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 interesting um, comedic sort of way of looking at it. And then um, through into college, I'd studied politics. So I guess I always still had an interest. I studied Irish politics and Russian politics and uh, the history of political thought and even a bit of philosophy in my, in my degree. Uh, so it was always in the background, politics, politics, po- politics. I was always keeping an eye on the personalities on the television. I, I was always interested in Hawhey and Garrett. 
I was always interested in that kind of light and shade, good and bad, or was he really bad and was he really good? Um, so even when I was 13 or 14, I would have been following these guys a little bit like a soap opera. Um, then I got kind of interested in American politics um, and I began to be interested in, in, in the Reagan era and stuff like that. Um, and I'd keep an eye on England and everything, although it was mainly Thatcher at the time. So it, 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 it was not dull, I wouldn't use dull, but kind of very safe, secure. She was in power for so long that there wasn't much changing there um, so much. But um, yeah, so politics. And then when I started doing comedy and started doing impressions, I guess without even knowing it, I had loads of um, politicians in my, if you like, armory that I didn't know about. So for example, I wasn't meant to be doing impressions on the radio. This was never the way I saw my life going. Um, I always thought I was, you know, an actor. And uh, through a, a series of happenstances, I ended up in Today FM in front of a microphone practicing a load of impressions. Okay, there's a few things there that I want to yeah. go back and unpick. Russian politics. Yeah. Okay, so how much of an expert did you become on that? Well, not an expert at all. And primarily, one of the best teachers I had in my life was, was uh, the, the, uh, the professor of Russian politics in Trinity, Ron Hill, Professor Ron Hill. Except I, something extraordinary happened to us because uh, in, my, um, in my first year of doing Russian politics, 1991, we walked straight into class and Ron went, well, hello, everybody. You are the gin and tonic generation, the generation I'm going to be, you know, probably, you know, um, behesting to in the next 50 years as you're all millionaires and taking over the world. But I, history of political thought, Russian politics today, I'm sorry, we have no course for you. As you can see, Russia is exploding. And so basically the first day of my course in Russian politics, uh, Yeltsin and, and Gorbachev and all this sort of stuff, and I'd, it had all gone mad. So we went, the only way we can do this course this year is by making some contacts in Russia, if you can. Do you know anybody? Can you find out any names? And just start making phone calls and seeing what you can do. And we'll invent the course as it goes along. We'll keep some of the course the structure of the course from before, but most of it doesn't mean anything anymore. It was the history, it was, it was, it was Soviet society we were meant to be studying. And of course, Soviet society had become, has, would become Russia. And so basically we were like, we became amateur journalists during the year, trying to scrape together some stories because the story was unfolding every day and history was changing in front of our eyes. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, th that was it. And I can't say I, because it was such a mess, I, and, and everything you were learning was probably half untrue anyway, because it was half of it was rumor coming out of Russia. Uh, my friend Johnny O'Reilly, actually, who, who is, uh, who is uh, a contributor to Eamon Dunphy's The Stand. So Johnny would be one of my closest friends. And even back then in 1991, Johnny went to, to Russia. He was in Russia. And I remember him ringing me and going, Fats, I'm on top of a tank. I'm on top of a tank in Red Square. And uh, like, you know, he was, he used to, he's quite daring and he used to get very close to the action. I always thought he should have been a, a war photographer, Johnny, but um, funnily enough, 30 years later, he's now doing reports from Kiev into Eamon Dunphy's The Stand. What did he call you? Fats. <laughs> a couple of my friends used to call me Fats. Uh, we used to, it was just a bit quite, quite, I was probably, you know, about three pounds overweight, Matt, and they were all like sculpted to within an inch of their life. And if you were like three pounds overweight, it was like lard ass, fat man, and all this. But in fairness, in fairness, uh, it has come back to haunt me because I find that as I get older, it is incredibly hard to keep the weight off and that you have to be very diligent. And uh, Okay, yeah. when you were doing your degree, what did you intend to do with it? The degree? Yeah, did, what did you intend to have a career in, in 
politics or analysis or what was it? Absolutely not. 100% not. The only reason I went to Trinity was to act. That was the only reason. Uh, and I had it planned out since I was 15. I knew that I did a play in Ashton Comprehensive School in Cork, where basically it was the whole Cork situation for me was a complete eye-opener. At a time where your hormones are raging and you're changing as a, a boy into a young man, um, I experienced Cork. And Cork was, Cork was a complete, um, a complete uh, rite of passage for me. Um, I fell in love for the first time in Cork. Um, I fell in love with acting in Cork. I fell in love with drama. I, dis- I discovered it. Uh, and I, I kind of found most of myself, what I regard now as myself, down in Cork. And that's why I have such an affinity with Cork and for doing Cork characters. I remember only being two days in Cork and I was already, I'd already lost my Waterford accent or my Dublin accent. It had gone completely and I was speaking completely in Cork because I wanted to embrace it. There was something. I wanted to get away from Dublin and get away from the problems I'd had in Dublin, which, you know, that's another issue. But um you, you tilted your head. Yeah, what problem? Well, um, the reason I went to Cork in the first place was because I had to go to boarding school because um, my family had, my family, my mother and father had had, well, not to put too fine a point on it, a tempestuous relationship, meaning that uh, by the time I had exhausted living with various members of my family, I had nowhere to live. <laughs> I was homeless, Matt. Genuinely. At what age? 15. Okay. At one stage I was living with friends. And how was that for you? It was really quite exciting and really unnerving and insecure and um, awful in a way. Exciting and awful because imagine being on the run, not on the run, but kind of running around the place when you're 14 or 15 and living in your friend's houses or your auntie's house who you hardly know for like three months and then she gives you to another auntie. Something like that. And... uh, you're kind of running around and you're on the street the whole time. I don't mean like on the street. You're, you're kind of out the whole time with your friends, having a ball. But you've no base. You've no home. You've no dad. A time I didn't really have any mom either. Um, so what happened was that this couldn't go on. The Mario couldn't go on living in friends' houses. So... Both kind of sides of my family, the grandparents' sides, clubbed together in a kind of a, some sort of meeting to go, right, well, we have to sort him out and take care of him and put him into boarding school somewhere, give him somewhere to live. So um, I went to Rochelle House in Cork and went to Ashton Comprehensive. I know, it's, I know where you're thinking. You're, I can see your mind ticking over. What the hell is this? I never knew this about Mario. Um, where do I even start? I can see your journalistic brain going. Your, your head is tilting to the left. Your head is saying, where do I go with this? How do I fill it this one up for the listeners? I can see you mad a mile off. But it is, it is like a lot of family stories. Labyrinthine and complicated. Did you have brothers and sisters? Yes, one brother, René. And what age was he? René is one year younger than me. So what happened to him? Were you separated? No, he went down to Cork a year before me. So in other words, he was in the same position. So we had been living together with mum, split up, blah, 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 went off the rails. Dad, no, couldn't do it. Aunt, uncles, <laughs> just wasn't happening. You can't expect your uncle, who has a life of their own, to kind of look after two you know, it was just bonkers. It was totally insecure. It was totally mad. I was actually thinking about it coming over in the car because I was going, 
I knew that this is a different kind of an interview, so I'm completely conscious of where I'm going with this. I have no problem. I have no problem talking about this. But I kind of want, I, I was thinking about it on the way over in the car and I was going, yeah, that's why I became fixated about owning a house. I really became fixated very young about owning a house because I was totally insecure about being um, nowhere to live, that I would have nowhere to live, that I would literally have a, no roof above my head. And I became, I think, driven by this idea that I, like, like Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, I'll scratch the dirt up off the road to make sure I own a house. Because I had such house insecurity. The amount of places I lived in, Matt, was was ridiculous. You know? And it was all to do with the... Uh, it was all to do with the... Uh, it was all to do with the in, innate insecurity and dis- destruction of my family unit between my mother and my father. The... I'll try and make it simple for you. They first started in about 1975. I was five years of age. I was in Waterford. They were living in Waterford. And they were fighting. Fighting all the time. There would be physical fights. There would be... It would be very, very... It would be very raucous. They were wild, the two of them. And there would be physical fights. And... You know... For a while then, I was living with my grandparents in Waterford. They were on a farm... And it was very peaceful. It was a lovely farm and my grandmother and grandfather. But in 1975, uh, my parents said, we're going to Germany. We're going to emigrate to Germany. And the most extraordinary thing happened. They asked me, did I want to come to Germany or did I want to stay where I was with my grandparents in Waterford? And I still to that, to this day, find it the most peculiar thing. And it's still, I cannot figure it out. Why was a five-year-old asked, and I said, I'm having a ball in this farm and, and going into school every day. And I love it here. I'll, I'll stay here. And they left without me. So they left Germany without me, took my brother with them. They stayed there for three or four years. I, I kind of lost contact with my parents and my brother. Uh, fell in love with my grandparents. They became my quasi parents. That's why I've often talked in the media about my grandmother. She gave me a lot of confidence in all this. And my grandfather was great. And so I grew up with my grandparents on a farm in Waterford. And then when my parents came back, it was the same story. They couldn't get on with each other. They were back and forth. They were living with other people. They were split up, back together, split up like Liz Taylor and and Richard Burton. Kind of, you know, slightly cheapened down slightly. Maybe not the diamond rings flying around the place. Uh, But like, they were hilarious, the two of them. And I, I aged over 50 now, I can say they were hilarious, the two of them. But absolutely devastating for for children are they still alive yes both of them both of them are still alive my father's my father's still alive and my mother's still alive and 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 i've i've spent quite a long time over the last few years with my mother trying to iron this out literally taking out a phone and going so hold on give me the timeline was it 1975 now let me get this straight you gave me the choice of living in staying in germany why didn't you drag me by the coat coattails and just bring me with you you're my mother. He's my father. What the hell is wrong with you? Mad. But anyway. And what, sorry, what does she say to you about that now? Oh, God. I, I probably shouldn't even go into it, Matt, because... Well, don't if you're not no, comfortable. No, it's no, not, it's not that it's uncomfortable. It's just that I'm still trying to find the answers myself. And she finds it very difficult to, uh, to explain. She said her and, and, and her husband were 
it was very, very hard going. They were trying to make it work. They would fight all the time. She said, I seemed to be genuinely happy in Waterford. And I was. I was having a ball, and not a ball. I was really good in school and I was kind of really thriving. And she said she wanted me to be just happy. So, again, why did they give me the choice of staying here? I don't know. Do you have a relationship with your father? No, I don't have a relationship with my father. And and that is some, that is that is that's something I've I've thought about a lot and so many so much stuff has happened and even through the media so much stuff has had it because for a while I was so pent up about it and so upset about it that I eventually began to use the media as a soapbox to get it off my chest nobody else I could talk to about it you know I could talk to my best friends like Nick uh, about it and he, they would be great listeners and everything but I wanted to almost see if I said it publicly, what would be the reaction? Because I wanted to know, was I mad? Is there something wrong with me? You know? So basically, I have no relationship with my father. It's an empty, dead relationship. And a particularly unhappy experience I had, actually, was with Ivan Yates. Ivan interviewed me on his program on News Talk. And he brought this up about my father. And during the discussion, he began to berate me. And after he berated me, he began to shout at me. Say, why? He, he began to shout and roar at me live on air. Right? So it's like, hold on a second. Why aren't you talking to your father? Why aren't you? I had an experience like that and I regretted it for the rest of my life. He's still alive. Talk to the fucker. Do it. And I'm there. What? Sorry, Ivan. This is not your business. This, you don't know what's going on in my life. I left this, this studio shaking. And I was rarely something like that happens to me. He really tore me apart for my relationship with my father, which he disapproved of because of something obviously very, very um, wounding that had happened to him. And um, anyway, subsequently, I spoke about it in the Sunday Independent and everything. And, and funny enough, Neve Horan, uh, a journalist who I'd had a little bit of a negative, uh, a negative um, experience with before, and um, I said, ah, oh, Neve, Neve, Neve. But she said, no, listen, Mario, I felt a bit bad about that before. Let's talk again. And we got talking about my father and everything. And I just said, I'd go for it. And she did this big feature in the paper about myself and my father. And I was, I was okay with it, like, do you know, because... But I sorry, of, did he ever contact you after that? No. He's, so when did you last speak to him? I last spoke to him when Roger Federer lost the greatest tennis match of all time um, to Rafael Nadal final of Wimbledon 2008 and you remember the date for two reasons clearly but why did you talk then and why have you because we were, still, we were probably at the very that was the last time we spoke I think my, 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 my little boy was one dash and I was showing him my little boy and you know no interest really okay are you in any way like either your mother or your father oh gotcha oh there's everything there's, of course you cannot deny genetics you know, in what ways do you like them so? So I look a lot like my father. He he would have physically my my look. Um, he has my eyes. I have his eyes. Um, I I I get my. There's a sense of madness that I have with the, with 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 stuff skits and stuff that I get from my mother's side of the family. Um, so that side of the her she's in O'Donovan um, from Waterford, and that whole side of the family we're all wired a bit in terms of putting on skits and doing voices and taking the piss out of each other and playing pra- pranks on each other, practical jokes that go too far. I mean, I love, I, I, there aren't many people in the world that bring practical jokes too far. 
And uh, they were that kind of family. They would, they would push practical jokes all the way, scare the shit out of you. And that kind of gave me my fir- one of my first inklings into the, the veil between reality and unreality. That we all go around with, a re- we, we act real. But actually, just behind that curtain is, is, is an unreality. And that's something I'm lov- I always wanted to tap into. The idea that what's the difference really between a skit and reality? It's just another way of looking at it. It's both are, both are the same. We just choose to believe one. And I'm, it's so funny, sorry to change the subject again, but when you see somebody like Boris Johnson, there is no difference between the skit and reality. He is the curtain and, in, and behind the curtain and in front of the curtain at the same time. You know, that's a different matter. But anyway, so she would have given me the, the love of, or maybe the instinct to, to play act, play act and do skits be an actor and love that other world that world where things aren't real make believe and him um i I suppose a lot of it came from physicality that we may be looking at it but his father was a german doctor who fought in the world war ii and was on on you know in combat and in jersey on the island of jersey and didn't see much combat in jersey now but that's where he met my grandmother. So it's a, that's again, that's a very funny story that my grandfather is a, was a sort of a six foot four, looked like Ray Fiennes kind of. He was a Nazi, was he? <laughs> hey, he most certainly was not a Nazi. And, and actually, uh, there's, a, there's a great story about that because um, my grandfather, when I was growing up at school in Waterford, they used to go, oh, dear Mario, now Dr. Det. <laughs> Because the rumour would go around, did you hear that Mario Rosenstock father was an Nazi? <laughs> and so, you know the way um, rumours spread in, yeah. in rural Ireland? Yeah. And so, at one stage then, I was a little blonde Nazi grandchild. <laughs> and, of course, my grandfather was a German, and he was a German living in Ireland. And he was a very interesting German living in Ireland because he was a doctor, and he was a famous doctor. And he had several surgeries throughout Limerick and Tipperary and all that sort of stuff. And he was wealthy. And he was well-loved. And uh, he was kind of renowned as a, as a diagnostician, I think, was his, was, was his premier thing. Almost a witch doctor. He'd walk, walk into a room and he could find out what's wrong with you. And generally, he would be, he would be right. Uh, so he, beca- he, he gained a great uh, reputation as a doctor. But having said that, he had loads of children, one of which was my father. And as far as I understand, uh, he was quite an austere man. Um, I remember when I met him, um, when he was about 83 or 84, he, he looked like Bismarck. The big handlebar moustache and the kind of, you know. Mario, this sort of explains that photograph you were showing me before we started doing the recording. <laughs> yeah. um, explain the photograph from your communion day. Is yeah, it? The, photos, the photos, I think, from my communion day. And I put it out the other day on social media. And basically, um, is Mario Satan started trending? And uh, because I look like the devil in the photograph. Now, it's, it's a lot, loads of people got back about the photograph. You look like a dictator in the making. <laughs> you, I mean, you have a like the medals and the way they're yeah. arrayed on your Those jacket. Are Aryan but the match. pose, the pose and the way that you grip the chair with your hand as well. Yeah. You see, that's uh, it. That's that's I'm a tin pot dictator, Matt, in the making, you know. So uh, uh, I'm an uh, Aryan, Aryan blood, you know. So anyway, actually, the first time when I was born, I'm the first grandchild. And first grandchild is always important in a family. Yeah. And uh so when I was born, the grandfather came over from Germany to see me. He flew over and uh, he flew over and he came up to the Moses basket. He looked in and he went, yeah, 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 fine German head. Flew back to Germany. That's all he wanted to know, that I had a fine German head. He had moved back at this stage, had he? No, he's, oh, sorry. He, 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 his marriage had broken up as well. All right. Um, and he lived in Germany. 
Okay. And uh, my family lived in, in Ireland. So um, to finish that part of it, it seems to me that the relationship between him and his children was extremely austere. Not much. Love was in evidence. There was a coldness. There was a remoteness. There was a kind of a Germanic, um, uh, you know, distance. And I very much believe that that affected, I won't speak for the others, but affected my father and led to an extreme coldness. But what's unusual about myself and my father is we're not fighting. You're just not communicating. No. And what Ivan Yates was giving out to me about was, pick up the fucking phone and go out for that guy with a pint and sort it out. And I thought that was the most limited understanding of relationships I'd ever come across. The lack of no- nuance that he, he showed no ability to, to understand complexity and the difficulty and the amount of thought I'd put into this already. And in fact, like I've made a concerted decision that the best thing for me in this situation and for my own mental health and for my own family is to, to not make contact for, for reasons that, you know, would probably implicit in what I'm talking about. It's, a, it's, a, it, you know, it's, it's one of those things. And I actually said it on my radio show years ago. Uh, a couple of years ago, I said, there's a lot of talk about mental health in this country. We're, it's very, very to the front. It's a lot of talk about this and that. Miscarriage was another one. People, and I, rightly so. But the one thing people have really haven't talked about is the elephant in the room in this country. I don't know how it'll ever be talked about. But the thing that rents us all apart is our families and brings us together. Every, nobody knows what goes on behind closed doors. Our families are... You look at somebody's family and go, they look, they look fine. And that fella will, sit, will, will roll his eyes and go, what? My family's fucking mad, Mario. <laughs> I haven't spoken to my brother in 18 years. He tried to fucking stick a knife through me. I haven't spoken to my dad in three years. My mother. We speak, but blah, blah. And you're going, but I thought you're all like the Waltons. Every family has a story. And I don't know what people should do, whether they should just keep it to themselves and go... Do you know what? We're Ireland. We just keep things behind closed doors and that's it. But you know what? I'm kind of sick of it. So I have no problem uh, divesting myself, if you like, of some of this stuff, almost if it's, if it's only for my own therapy. Have you had therapy? Have you had help? No, I haven't had help. And it's something that I've spoken to a lot of people about and I'm actually tiptoeing, I, believe, I think, towards that I would like to look down that direction because I definitely think I would have a lot to work out. But are you happy still as a happy individual despite all this? Because you do strike me as that you take a certain joy out of life. Oh, you God, embrace yeah. life. Yes. You don't let this burden you unnecessarily, no, do you? not at all. Not at all, Matt. Not at all. Um, I don't like the, the question, are you happy? But I do know that I'm full of energy. I laugh all the time. I love. I am loved. I will love till the day I die. I love my kids. I love Blonnet. I love my friends. I adore my work. I love the people I work with. And I use the word love very, very um, uh, uh, pointedly because I love the word love. And I love the fact that I'm an Irish man who doesn't have a problem talking about love because a lot of Irish men do. Um, I, my uncle died a few weeks ago and he was, I was quite close to him. But he was, a, he was great. He was one of the O'Donovans, my mother's side. He was my mother's brother. And he always throughout my life used to say, Mario, I love you. I love you, Mario. I love you. And he was great at telling people that he loved them. Uh, and he wouldn't be drunk or having a drink. He would be sober. 
as a judge when he would do it. And he, he made the word love. One, one of the people in my life who made the word love very vibrant for me, that love should be told to people. You should tell people you love them. And he was very affectionate as well. You should put your arms around people. And I'm tactile and affectionate. But no, my, my experiences in life were, in, in the family situation, deeply unsettling and unhappy. But I did not suffer from lack of love. My grandparents poured me with love, showered me with love. So I was a little boy, little blonde, little dictator there. But I was growing up showered with love, covered in love. People loved me. I was good in school as well. So I was popular. Um, people liked my impressions. I could make people laugh. I was good at football, good at tennis. So I was kind of, thr- I thrived and I was covered in love. But I had a deeply unsettling, insecure life for which I have spent, I think, my adulthood trying to get it back, trying to get it back, trying to create the Waltons, which won't exist, but trying to, trying to build a family, trying to, trying to have that thing that I never had. And I know that that's true. I, I know it sounds a little cliched, but it's 100% true. I have absolutely, I never wanted the family that I had. Never wanted it. I always, and I wanted to look in my children's eyes just when they're over there and looking at television. I want to look in their eyes and go, they're happy, they're happy, they're not insecure. They're not insecure. They know where they're going to be tonight. They know that their mama, ma- mama and dada loves them. Uh, and I never had that, but I wanted them to have it and I'd kill myself to do it. And that's what I've been doing. Happy, 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 happy in my work and joyous that I can make my family and my wife happy and secure. Let's take a slight detour here because, well, it's linked. And one thing that has struck me about you over the years, which is really to your credit, and I think I understand it a little bit more now, is one thing I've always really liked in your humour is that you're never cruel to people. You might take the piss out of people a bit, but unlike other comedians who I won't name, I've never had and I've seen an undercurrent of nastiness. You're actually, you like people. I love people. It's not in me. It's not in me to be nasty. It's not. No, it's not in me to be nasty. No, I've heard you say such and such is a bollocks or whatever and oh, stuff yeah. like that. I mean, you're not blind to oh, people's faults. Yeah. And I do have opinions about people. But you don't actually, in your sketches or in your comedy, ever try and inflict hurt on your subject. Not at all. Not at all. And I think that's outside the pale. Yeah. Um, I think there's several aspects to that, what you're talking about. One is... I try and see people for what they show to public. So if you're a minister for finance, you have to answer to the public. You are there to be shot at and I will try and see what you're doing um, um, officially and publicly and see what we can do with that. But I have no interest in going on about your private life or your sexual predilections or, your, or, or what goes on underneath, what goes on underneath the veil. Um, I don't want to hurt people. Uh, I don't like bullying. I hate bullying. And I think when you have a pen and a and a and a and a, and a, uh, a bully, uh, if, you're, if you have a microphone, if you're on stage, you have the potential, yes, to to bully, bully and hurt people. And it's easy, it's easy, it's easy to be crass and it's easy to be nasty. And so I say I, I choose not to go down that road. 
I also, though, think that there's a slightly different sense to my comedy. I love the surreal and I love the madness and the absurd rather than the, let's say, deeply satirical uh, nastiness, if you like. Because this is one of the problems that annoys me. This is about satire. Satire is often confused with just being nasty. And it isn't. Satire is comedy plus truth, pointedness. But it must be funny, in my view. It can't just be nasty. If there's a guy, in, you get into a taxi, he goes, the government pack a fucking cunts. That's not satire. But a lot of people would sort of claim, you know, we spoke truth to the people, right? And you could easily do a sketch where you just go, them and their fucking expenses and they're riding us all and they're fucking us all and they're just like assholes. And what a great sketch there by Jimmy O. Whatever, you know. And you go, what well, isn't a great sketch? It's just saying they're a load of bastards. Saying they're a load of bastards is not hard. It's easy. Well, can you say they're a load of bastards by being funny, though? And one of the ways I choose to be funny, or try to choose to be funny, or try to find humour, is in this surreal thing. So, analogy, lampoon, parody, music. Um, but there has to be an element of truth to it, doesn't there, yes. to make it work. And I'll give you one example, one that I love of one of the characters that you do. And I'll tell you why I love it in a second, but Pascal Donoghue. Mm. Pascal is a very, very well-spoken and thoughtful individual. And you have him then breaking out into a gurrier yeah. at times. And one of the reasons I enjoy so much, I was interviewing him recently, it was on budget day. And the next thing I heard an edge coming into his voice. And the next thing, he's going to go on Mario on me. Yeah, he's yeah. going to actually go. Because there is that toughness to Pascal, yes. which actually is perhaps not necessarily always appreciated. And I think you know him from college, don't you? No, no, my, my wife went to college. Oh, he was four years uh, behind me. Um, yeah, so the thing about that is that notion would have started in a meeting room. Yeah. And I'd be talking to Ian and Charlie and I'd be going, so Pascal Donoghue, right? And he's Pascal Donoghue, say, guys, he is absolutely ruling the roost here. Look at his competence. Did you see the way he was able to fill it Pierce Doherty last night? Did you see the command of his brief he has? Do you see the way he's able to get into Matt Cooper and do the book reviews? Do you see his knowledge of music? This guy has a brain the size of, of, of the Congo. I mean, this guy is, is, is he's gifted. And he's so polite and nice and good with it all. There must be something driving that. There can't, you can't just be that. He is a man of steel beneath this. And I, I then invented this idea that it's Leo and all these guys are just the Borisy front men. And that he's running the whole fucking show. And that he's all very nice and it's mad. I mean, I met him coming through the door once. His, his arms went through the air. Up into the air And he smiled And went Mario 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 Oh Mario I love the skits Every morning I, I, I Some of them I can't hear Because I'm busy With my brief But they are All sent to me And I listen to them Judiciously And religiously And they're so They're wild The flights The fancy He even gets the humour About himself And You know Underneath all this then I, re- I reckon That there is A man of steel and of course, he was, you know, he was brought up, he wasn't brought up in, in, in Fox Rock or anything like it. No, he's, a ba- he's a Ballymun boy. He's a Ballymun boy. And so I invented this character, Ballymun Pascal, the guy that could turn on you in a second and that Leo and all those are, are, are aware of it. And that behind the scenes, it's Pascal running the whole show, really. And that was my idea. But I've, I've applied that, if you like, rule of thumb to most characters I've done on Gift Grub because I love the idea that behind a character, there's somebody else. 
And it actually happened with one of the first characters, uh, Roy. And it's just, it's, it's a thing that I tell all the time, but it was very difficult to do Roy Keane. What was there to do? He was just a boot boy, really, at the beginning. Just a guy who's Roy Keane. He'd say nothing. He'd never hear him saying anything. He'd no interviews. La, la, la. And then I remember he once he went on Pat Kenny on The Late Late Show. Pat, of course, you know, stiff as a board as usual, trying to get conversation out of Roy, you know. Jesus Christ, it was painful. It was painful. So, Roy, I'd say now that you're on 50 grand a week, I'd say the pints are on you down in the Temple Acre Tavern. And Roy just went, kind of, his, his little be- beautiful eyelashed eyes just looked up and went, I don't know about that, Pat. <laughs> and I went, what was that little giggle? There was a little kind of giggle. It was a self-deprecating kind of giggle. And I went, I'll use that. And so I started giving him a little laugh. And believe it or not, that was what defined the Roy Keane. That there wasn't just a monster. There wasn't just, he was the opposite of Pascal. That beneath this, 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 this monster, there was actually a heart of gold, a little cuddly fella. And it's not far from the truth. Keane, of course, has a highly developed sense of humour. Um, he's extremely intelligent. He's extremely generous. And extremely generous, it seems. But a highly developed sense of humour. And, uh, and uh, I thought this was interesting. And so people would, that's why for the last 20 years, people would come up to me in pub and just, a fellow would come up to me behind me and just go, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> imagine, imagine being tortured by that all your life, Matt. Fellas going, ha, 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 ha. And, you know, this idea that people would hand you their mobile phone at 11.20 in a pub at night and go, Mario, just do my voicemail message, will you, as Roy Keane. And you go, what's your name? Matt. How's it going? Matt isn't available to take a call at the moment because he's out of training with me. Ha, 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 ha. Leave a message. Ha, ha. <laughs> it's just like that's my life. Um, so yeah, so I love the, I love, I love, I love the surrealness. And uh, Cork, tell us a bit more about Cork. What do you love so much about Cork? Oh God, what do I love so much about Cork? Um, well, it taps into my life so much. It it it, over, it crosses over my life so much. Cork is a deeply political town. Um, you know, through the treaty and through you know um, Collins and 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 the anti-treaty and pro-treaty, and then of course it has, it has this sort of affinity with Labour as well. You know, because it has a city and an inner city and it has a sense, a, a sense of social justice in it as well. So it has all the classic things that Dublin have. But I love the way it sees itself as other. I love the way the Cork sees itself as other. I love this. This is my favourite. I think it may be something in me as well. I've never been one to run with the herd, ever. Uh, I remember I never saw Riverdance, ever. Everybody I knew went to see Riverdance and I never went to see Riverdance. And the more I never went to see Riverdance, the more I never was going to see Riverdance because everybody else did it. And I never bought telecom shares. For those of you who are too young to know, everybody had telecom shares. I never did that. And I never wanted to be one with the herd. I would always be the one in class who go, so they all agreed on that class. And I go, no. And I go, what's wrong with you now, Mario? I go, I just, I, it can't be right if we're all agreeing on it. It's just, we're all just nodding our head. It just can't be right. Let's question it a bit more. So I love the otherness of Cork. They call it the Rebel County. I think this is slightly different. There's an otherness. They love being, we are not of Ireland necessarily. We are Cork. It's like as if it's Cork first, Ireland second. And I, there's something about that I quite love. Um, it's like Narnia. It's another place. It's like there's Ireland, there's Dublin, but then in the far distant beautiful land with its own microclimates and beautiful towns like Glengariff and Goline. And everything you have as well, by the way, in your big city smoke, there's Cork. We are Cork. And all the people that come out of Cork, you can see it. So, for example, the public personalities like Ronan O'Gara, it's obvious, you know? I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's non-negotiable. It's Cork. It's always going to be Cork. 
uh, with Roy Keane. Of course, it's Cork. You know, it's non-negotiable. And I love that stubborn. Now, whenever I go down to Cork, which is frequently because I'm always doing shows down there, the other thing about it is their sense of humour. They have a finely developed sense of humour. So when you get into a taxi in Cork, taxi driver, liable often or not, will give you five minutes of material on stuff. And it won't be bad. You're going, this isn't bad shit. Like, I mean, after a while, I started taking out the phone and recording them. Um, because I'm going, this is actually new, fresh. Not cliched stuff. Great senses of humour. And I don't know. There's something warm about it. Look, it's a personal thing as well. Maybe not everybody has the same affinity. But I was 14, 15 years of age. I was in boarding school. I was being lowered down by bedsheets onto the road to escape the, 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 the boarding school at night so we could go out to Lennox's for chips at midnight. You know, sneaking out to a pub. You know, age 16, underage. Um, falling in love. Um, kissing. Uh, girls. It's just, for me, it's magic. Cork um, and how competitive they are as well and I'm, I'm quite a competitive person and uh, I love I love how competitive they are spirited um, but it's I think mainly it's the proudness and the otherness the fact that they are other than us don't you boy <laughs> <laughs> okay let's move on tell me a bit about your love of being on stage because let's leave Gift Grub aside for a moment but Gift Grub gives rise to the tour that you're about to go on and this must be I don't know is this your 10th, 12th, 20th tour? I don't know how many is it? Yeah it's about the, about the 14th tour. 14th yeah okay. So going on stage yeah. how much of a buzz and a lift do you get on stage and then and I'm asking you this because I've been on stage with you a couple of times with things like Events and that the Cork I might, one and everything yeah, like and Munster Rugby, which I remember particularly yeah, that was Limerick. Peter, Peter Mannion, yeah, and Conor Murray, who you ripped the piss out of <laughs> hilariously the yeah. same night. But I'm looking at you and I'm going to myself, how much is he almost gone out of control, and yet how much is he still totally in control? So, what happens to you on stage? Because it is almost like when you get to a certain degree, looks like manic, mm. but yet you're still in control mm. of what you're saying so yeah. that you don't go too far. Mm. How does that happen? Well, first of all, um, the being on stage thing. So being on stage for me was something I found that was a legitimization of myself and how people would love me. So I, I explained to you, it's a little cliched, but I don't care because I've thought about it a lot and I'm going to go through with it. Um, although I said to you that I, I was love was poured on me when I was a child, I did lack in the most fundamental type of love, the love of the parents, where you have that security, the love, the security of love with parents. And I convinced that I found that on the stage. It's the outpouring of love for you, this kinetic energy which spills over in waves through laughter and in waves onto you, onto the stage, that not only um, gives you love but reinforces your energy and makes you stronger and stronger and stronger until you are a dynamo, a force of nature. Um, the love is, 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 is exceptional and it powers you, you know, up afterwards. I often talk about being on stage and the feeling you get about being on stage. I don't know if you've ever heard me talking about this, but I, I like to analyze the, the actual physical um, manifestations of being on stage that, that happen to you. So, for example, I have a bad sense of smell and my hearing isn't, it's about, my hearing is 80%, I'd say. not It's a little 20% short. When I come off stage at night, I can smell absolutely everything. My, my, and I can hear things from a mile away. 
My senses are completely enhanced. Um, I am, to all extent, lupine. I'm like a wolf. <laughs> and this feeling, of course, is something I've analysed and it's something that other per performers get. Maybe they haven't talked about it as much as me, but it's a fantastic feeling. You are truly, totally alive. All your senses are awakened. Now, there's a, or there's a scientific reason for it, and it's all the blood capillaries in your body, the tiny little capillaries, are filled and flowing with blood, enhancing all your senses. And, of course, this is... It's why actors and performers frequently do the worst thing possible you can do. I feel great. I want to feel even better. Let's take drugs and get Well, drunk. I was just about to ask that because it's the come down after that. Yeah, day. massive, massive come down. And how do you deal with it? Yeah, very massive come down. So beginning of my career, I used to deal with it very poorly. I used to drink excessively, drink until I fell down, except it takes so long for the adrenaline to wear off. You'd only fall down at about six o'clock in the morning and then you're some heap the next day. So then I gradually realized this won't work if you want to keep it going on the long term. So now I watch Napoleon documentaries. <laughs> <laughs> and believe me, a three hour Napoleon documentary about the Battle of Austerlitz is going to finish you off at night because your brain is so alive that you need to consume dense material to, uh, to sate it. Um, and so I'll watch a three hour documentary on until two o'clock in the morning, at half two in the morning, and then I fall asleep suddenly. And you have to be hauled up to bed. Um, then the second question you asked was about the how do you hold it together? Um, I think you're in so much control. Your brain synapses, your synaptic energies, your neural impact uh, impulses are working so fast that actually you're, you're two or three seconds ahead of everybody all the time. And emotionally, I'm in control. I mean, I'm playing a character. Emotionally, I'm in control. Uh, and you're well able to monitor and gauge what you're saying. You're in quite a lot of control. You're driving a Ferrari sports car at 220 kilometers an hour uh, or 300 kilometers an hour. And that's what you can turn yourself into if you get into the right state of mind. It's fascinating because to, to, to get to, to perform on a stage two hours, which I do, the, the adrenaline, I'm used to it now, the adrenaline starts coming into your body about half three, four o'clock in the afternoon and gradually five, six, seven, eight, it deepens, deepens, deepens until at eight o'clock you're a tiger basically. Get it ready to get out. You from a wolf to a tiger, yeah, or a tiger, <laughs> to then later to a wolf. Um, and you are for a one man performance to do something on stage where you transform characters so much, and you sing and you dance and you dance and you sing at the same time, and you utterly transform character and you inhabit characters because I see them as characters rather than impersonations. Yeah, I think we've come a long way from impersonations. I'm I'm much more into the idea of character that you inhabit somebody. Yeah, that you become them. And that you, you think as them, as you do them. You know, it's not Mike Yarwood. Yeah. It's, 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 that's 50 years ago. But it's also a representation. I mean, you don't literally become Ronan O'Gara. Of course You become not. a representation no, of Ronan O'Gara. it's me as Ronan O'Gara. It's how yeah. I see Ronan O'Gara. Yeah. And that's, of course, one thing. I mean, you get the odds. You'll get people in like going, um, that doesn't sound a bit like Matt Cooper. And of course it isn't. What it is, is it's a cartoon. And it's an impression. So like, for example, you know, if, if, if you looked at one of Manet's or, uh, photographs, you went, that's not a, doesn't look like a tree. Yes, it's his impression of a tree. You know, I mean, it, the whole idea is if you want to do a fucking, you know, uh, if you want to do an, a, a, a spot on impression of somebody, just get their voice. Put it on the tape instead of yourself. That'll be the exact voice. Why bother you doing it at all? It must be an impression. And that's why people enjoy, people who do enjoy what I do enjoy it because they're hearing my opinion. True voice. Yeah. So when you are doing Pascal, they're going, they're, you're painting a picture of who Pascal is or the entitlement of Leo, a kind of blasé kind of entitlement of Leo, you know, which you can't get rid of. 
Um, so you're, 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 you're doing an impression and giving an opinion. Um, you're going on tour. When does the tour start? So the tour starts on February 24th in the Royal Theatre in Castle Bar. And then um, there are about 23 nights all throughout Ireland, including um, at the moment three nights in the Opera House, Thursday, Friday and Saturday, seven, and um, three nights in the Olympia. And a very good one, March 17th in the INEC in Killarney. Paddy's Day in Killarney. <laughs> That would be fantastic. Um, so putting the show together now with Ian Dempsey at the moment. That's what I was going yes. to ask you about is that do you work with other people when it comes to the writing or is it all you or who do you listen to as sounding boards? Oh, Ian, very much so. Charlie's another great sounding board. This is Charlie Halligan. Uh, Charlie Halligan, our producer on The Breakfast Show. Charlie is somebody I've grown to have great regard for over the years. He started off as a producer or as a researcher and now he's a producer and I, I initially saw him as a producer but... It turns out he has a great comic head on him as well and great judgment head. He's great judgment as a producer, Charlie. And he kind of knows gift grub stuff as well. And he knows what people might like to hear. But the primary, the principal one would be Ian. Ian is the guy with the great judgment in terms of what he believes a, uh, a, a, my audience would like to hear. He's brilliant like that. I can get caught up too much in the internal and I can't see the outside. And that's normal for somebody who who'd gets so deep into something. Ian can see it from the outside and he goes... Mario, people would just love to see Miriam doing that. Just do that. Is that not a bit simplistic? And he went, no, you think it's simplistic. They'd love to see that. Or people would love to see that. He was the first one that hurt when I, the Roy Keane laugh. He went, the laugh. I went, what? I didn't even know it. He went, I love the laugh. They like the laugh. See this old fashioned nouse for what people would like to see. It's like Tony Fenton as well and Ian Dempsey. They would be two of the last people I knew anyway that could actually listen to a new song and go, that has it. You know, I remember Tony sending me like um, songs. I go, I don't see it, Tony. Dude, this is going to work. And I remember him sending me one going, seasons change. And uh, Future Islands. And I went, Tony, I don't get it. Fifth listen, I was going, Tony, this is the best song I've ever heard. He went, told you, dude. You know, because they, uh, they have an ear. They have an ear for what works. Funnily enough, it's a real skill. It's a real talent. It, they, they can spot a song. Um, so they're like, somebody said it to me as well. If Tony and Ian had not been DJs, they would have been employed by some of the top record companies in the world as A&R men. Going out to clubs, looking at bands and going, that one. They could have made a fortune doing that, you know, because they have the ear. So Ian has a great ear for, he loves comedy as well. He's always loved comedy, you know. And he loves, he's quite an omnivorous taste in comedy. So he loves, he loves Alan Partridge. He likes Ricky Gervais, but he loves Morecambe and Wise. Yeah. And he, he would have a kind of a wide, a wide palette. And that's, of course, really interesting because we do lots of different types of comedy as well. Come here, Fats. <laughs> <laughs> You've lost a lot of weight recently. I have, yeah. You're starting to look after yourself again. Oh, yeah. I've always looked after myself, to be honest. It's just that I have a, like any man who's in his early middle age, I have a prop- propensity to... If I eat a Mars bar, it'll be on me for the next month. And if I, if I, uh, sorry for calling me fats, that's funny. But if I don't. I, I only did that because you mentioned it. I know, it's true, it's true. And, um, but I've lost, I've lost a stone. Um, I've lost a stone over the last three months, being, four months, being very, very careful about what I eat. And as you discussed with me as well, you can't out-train a bad diet. So you have to actually watch what you put into your body. So if I do a 10 mile, 10 kilometer run today, there's no point in going home and having, you know, my dinner and three slices of Brennan's bread with butter because then it's gone. You know, um, so you've got to actually watch what you put into your body. And I'm going to continue with this and I feel very good doing it. And, uh, 
you know, you need to be fit to fit as a flea to jump around on stage for two hours. Yeah, when you are fit, I mean, and yeah. I'll get to tennis in a moment, yeah. but um, I, I want to ask you about something that you have told me about, so yeah. I am going to ask okay. you about it, because I think this will be of enormous interest to an awful lot of middle-aged men yes. like myself. Yes. And this is your now, your interest in your level of testosterone. Mm. Tell us about this, because okay. I'm aware of other friends of mine who are going down the same route that you've gone down. Okay, so I went to a doctor, and I went to a doctor principally probably about my cholesterol levels, um, my insulin um, tolerance to see if I had any issues on that level um, because I was worried about the stubbornness of my body to lose weight. And now it's quite common for men of my age to have difficulty losing weight. But with me, it feels really stubborn. Like I could I could kind of starve myself and it would be not, not shifting, you know. And anyway, so I went and he went, um, yeah, like your, your figures are, are okay and generally but i'll tell you what's through the floor is your testosterone and i went what and my testosterone and he went yeah your man hormone what makes you a man and what do you mean i mean well it it's us it's man you, you so he explained to me i knew this already broadly but he confirmed to me explained to me that men are testosterone this is our defining like again i'm not a doctor talking i'm only telling you what i'm told this is Although our, you come from a medical background. I do, yes. But this, is, in the this is our defining hormone. Okay. You know, I mean, isn't it estrogen with females? Yeah. And a testosterone for males. It gives us our drive. It gives us our erections. It gives us our uh, force, our, our, our what you might call manliness, I suppose, whatever that is. Um, I'm, I'm reluctant to say that word in the modern cancel culture. Um, but you don't seem to be lacking drive. No, I'm not lacking drive. But what the, the, it seemed was that my testosterone was through the floor. Very, very low level. Abnormally low levels. Abnormally low levels. That and must have come as a surprise. It did. Yeah, it did. And then I, I've gone, I went on a course of testosterone. So it's called testosterone optimization. And I've been on it for about four months and I feel better. And the principle... In what way better? I, I can be very clear about it. A fog has been lifted from my thinking process. I was a little bit foggy and I felt a little bit foggy and much more clarity has come into my thought process, my decision-making process and what I believe can and will work. In other words, confidence in saying, this will work, I'm going to do this. Okay? You're skeptical. Go on. Yeah. Now, you're not a doctor either. I know. Mm -hmm. So, um, the ability to take on a bit more planning and hard work. Now, I work hard already, but I've decided that I'm able for the hard work a bit more. I'm kind of, Planning more to do, planning more for the hard work rather than panicking when the work arrives at my inbox and going, I can't handle it. It's just too much. I'm being overwhelmed. I'm kind of a bit more, feeling myself a bit more capable. So were you feeling overwhelmed? Yes, I pre frequently feel overwhelmed because I, I do so many things. So I do gift grub, stage. I do many, many corporates and I do uh, a podcast, a weekly podcast with weekly comedy. 
which comes up with new ideas, comes up with new ideas as well. And you're constantly, constantly, and sometimes the deluge can just come in on top of you like a wave, and you just cannot deal with it, and you panic. Sometimes when I panic, then I just go, I need a few days off, go home and I drink a couple of bottles of wine to try and, as Vincent Brown used to say, delete the files. (laughs) (laughs) He used to say that to me. Can't do Friday. Why? I need to drink. What? You need to drink on Friday? Yes. To delete the files. Sorry, Paul Horne told us exactly the same about Vincent Brown recently. Yes. Well, this is what Vincent (laughs) told me to my face. And he told it to Paul's face as well. (laughs) (laughs) Very funny. So, um... I feel good. I feel good since. Yeah. And I believe also it's helping with my weight loss. I cannot confirm that. So I'm not a doctor, but I do believe it's helping with my weight loss because my weight loss is not sudden. It's steady and it's, um, it's, it's, it's incremental. Now, listen, you know, again, I'm not a medical doctor. All I know is that it has no zero, it has zero side effects, zero negative side effects. And it's what seemed to me to be positive. So what are you taking? Testosterone. How often? Oh, I take it every three days. Okay. And I inject it. And have it's that, a performance enhancing steroids. That's right? what I was just about to say. Have you and developed the ben big muscles? Of the comedy world. <laughs> and the beard has come on. No, Matt, the only thing that's changed is every time I write a new comedy sketch, I have a huge erection. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. I mean, I tell you, I've heard, when people call me the biggest prick in Irish comedy. <laughs> Okay, listen, just to finish off, your podcast, because I mentioned at the start you had uh, Cal Thomas on it. Yeah. One of the ones that I really enjoyed. Yeah. That the dog, yourself? No. You no, were brilliant no, on it. Oh, stop, stop, If you want to listen back to Matt's podcast, he was effing and blinding on it. It was great. It's very I think he felt liberation from not being on the last word. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, one of the ones that Scout, my dog, got a very long walk on, which I really enjoyed. And this is maybe somebody who was one of the lesser known people, Conor Nyland, because your love of tennis. Yeah. Did you and enjoy the Conor Nyland? I thought the conversation you had with him was absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And you got so much stuff out of him, mm. great stories out of him. Yeah. But your love of tennis is, yeah. that's your number one sport. I know you play golf as well. Yeah. And oh, tennis, miles, miles away. Yeah. yeah. Miles ahead. Why? What is it about tennis? I don't know, but I, I've thought about it a lot and I have some theories. Um, one is it's independent. So you are responsible for yourself. I love team games, but I love independence of being able to do it yourself. So it's you, your fault. If you made the mess, you clean it up. If you get the awards, you've done great. The second thing about tennis is, is that it is a stage. Tennis is an auditorium. It's a theater. And the audience watch the play. And in the play, we all have our lines. My line. Your line. My line. Your line. Resolution. Clap. Applause. Bow. It seems to me that I've always been on stage, even when I was on tennis court. And I think there's something dramatic about tennis. So, for example, when you watch, let's say, Wimbledon. And Quiet, please. McEnroe now. About to serve for the match. And this moment of pure tension is in the air, which you don't necessarily get in other sports, which are continuous, raucous noise. Okay, Johnny Sexton does have quietness to take his kicks at goal, but it's not quite the same. I would have thought that was off-putting quietness. Yeah, for to the kicks at goal. Yeah. yeah, well, he can deal with it, clearly, and, and Raj can deal with it. But um, no, it's the, it's the drama of tennis that I love. Um, the drama. And... Uh, 
and it is helped as well by some of the, the the great personalities I've seen through the years. My first love was Borg, and subsequently ended with Federer, who, who, who I adore. All right, I'm going to call a halt to it there. That has been the most fun I've had in ages for talking to somebody. That has been absolutely terrific. Uh, before you go by, let me know the name of your doctor as well. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's, I recommend your own podcast to everybody. And I'm sure you'll have a sellout tour next year as well. And look forward to hearing you on Gift Club. Although that thing that you do with myself and Frank Green, I don't know what you're at with that. Mario Rosenstock, thank you very much for being with us. Yeah, Matt, I just want to say as well, it's been great knowing you over the last um, 20 years and, I've en- and I must say that I've enjoyed all the interactions with you and, and, and also your support. And I remember when Matt first came to see, uh, I remember when we did a little test once of, of Gift Grub Live for the first time we did it in the Sugar Club and uh, it was the first night. We knew no, no idea if this was going to work. It was just 200 people, invited friends and family and we were absolutely so nervous about it. And I remember we finished up and we went to the bar afterwards and Matt went, Jesus, there's legs in that, I tell you. <laughs> and here we are 14 years later talking about having erections. <laughs> and that was Mario Rosenstock with the latest in the Magnified with Matt Cooper podcast series. There are many others that you can enjoy if you go to the Go Loud app or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And please, if you do like them, well, share them with friends. We want to get the message out that there are these interviews there to as many people as possible. And my thanks again to Mario for having been with us. He has his own terrific podcast as well on the Go Loud app, The Mario Rosenstock Show. But that's all from us for today. Until the next time, from me, Matt Cooper, thank you very much for taking the time for being with us.